for the, per, the great um, permission you give us to look at your words, these living words. It's an awesome thing to approach them. There's great truth in the words of Jesus Christ, and as we've been studying through Matthew, we see how wonderful Matthew puts together the life of Christ for us. And we thank you for this great text this morning. It's a Easter text in a surprising way. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So, do you know where you are this morning? You're sitting in a church. No, wait. You're sitting in a school. (laughs) But you are sitting in a church service, right? So while you might not be sitting in a church, you are sitting with a church. And you are sitting with the church because the church of Jesus Christ is not a building. In our culture, we use the word church of the building that's designated for the gathering place for what the Bible calls the church. In the New Testament, they didn't have any church buildings. They met in people's homes. So whenever the New Testament talks about the church, it's never talking about a physical structure, ever. The first place where the language of building and the first use of the word church in the New Testament appears right here in Matthew chapter 16. So that's, if you want to look there, that's where we are. And we started looking at this text last week. And it's a wonderful passage where Peter makes this great declaration that he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus confirms Matthew's confession of faith by telling him that, Peter, you didn't come up with this on your own. He said, the Father revealed it to you. And Jesus says to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And we looked at, in some depth last week, about why the rock is really best understood as the confession that Peter made, the idea that Uh, the ideas that God had put into him, that the Father had given to him to to confess when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter said the right thing. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, the Father revealed that to you, not your flesh. You didn't pick up that on your own. That's a revelation of God to your heart. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a truth claim a declaration of truth about the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So he is a completely unique person. You can't say those things about other people. He's more than human, much more. He is human, but the the person who has taken a full human nature to himself is actually the Son of God. God in eternity becomes man in time. A particular man at a particular time and coming for a very special purpose. So Peter gets it. So Jesus, responding to Peter, uses the language of building. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So plainly he's using it in a metaphorical 
sense here. Build my church. He uses it in the same way that we would say a coach is building a great team or a king is building a mighty army. It's that, it's that kind of metaphorical use of the word building. So a coach or a king, what do they do? They assemble people they have chosen for a purpose, and that's what Jesus does in building his church. He calls people out into his fold, uh, his flock, his team, if you want to call it that, and he's building this, it's not, uh, institution is a bad word. Let's use a Bible word, his body, this body of people. The word church, before it became a Christian word, um, and, you know, it's a Greek word, uh, ecclesia. Spanish-speaking Spanish people went right with the Greek word, ecclesia, right? That's the Spanish word. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. And our word for church comes from Germanic languages and stuff. But the, the word church, before it became a, a Christian word in the Greek-speaking world, simply meant a called-out assembly, like calling the town out to gather for a a political meeting or a school assembly calling everyone together for something like that. But in the New Testament, in the New Testament, the word means much more than that. It, it is calling people to come out of a lost world into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ to become one of His people. A Christian then, a true Christian, is a person who follows that call and enters into a relationship with Christ as a Savior and a King. The Apostle Paul, when he was preaching the gospel all over the place and he was going back to Jerusalem and he sort of stopped in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he uh, was heading back to Jerusalem and he, he had a final meeting with the leaders of the church there, the elders. He called them all together and he gives a great talk to them. But one of the things he says to them, he says, be on your guard. This is in Acts chapter 20. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Just that sentence right there tells you that Christ is regarded as God because God purchased it with his own blood, right? So there we see the church called a flock. The elders are to shepherd the flock, to take care of the flock because the flock is the church of God. And that flock is made up of people who have been purchased by Jesus. What price did he pay for them? His life, right? He purchased them with his own blood. So the church is a group of people purchased with the blood of Christ by his death on their behalf, saving them from their sins and restoring them into a relationship with God. You know who really explains this well, this whole sort of idea? Not using the word church, but he explains it really. It's Peter. Peter, the guy Jesus is going to build his church on, whose confession Jesus is going to build the church on. So you can go to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a second if you've got your Bibles with you. Peter wrote a letter uh, that appears in the Bible, and if you know your way around the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, he doesn't use the word church, but he goes all out in following this metaphor of a building, the building idea. And those who belong to Jesus are like stones in the edifice. And here's what he says. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Verse 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow 
in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, and coming to Him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed but you you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Isn't that great? There's a lot there. So the church is a spiritual house and those who belong to it are living stones. They make up this spiritual household. And when we are made alive by the Spirit of God, born again, if you want to use that word, we come to the builder, Jesus Christ, and he makes us to be a holy priesthood offering up these spiritual sacrifices to God, service, worship, they must be offered, he says in verse 5, through Jesus Christ because only His blood, only by His blood can we approach God. Then verse 7 it says, this is for those who believe. So the church, as the Bible defines it, is not people sitting in a congregation or even on membership roles or anything like that. The true church the biblical church is made up of believers in Christ. And verse 9 is just abusive with these descriptions of living stones. We're described as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And the purpose of those people is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were in darkness. I was in darkness. He called me into the light. We didn't care much at all about the excellencies of our Creator. I didn't grow up caring about that. That wasn't my first thought, proclaiming His excellencies. I didn't think about His excellencies much at all, really. But He saved me from apathy, from spiritual dullness. And having received His gracious mercy, we delight in all that we know and learn about Him. Because we're His now, we belong to Him. To speak of how excellent He is is... That's just the most right and proper thing to do. And it's, it's the delight of our hearts to do that. So all of these ideas, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, being a people for God's own possession, they all describe facets of the salvation that God's people have in Christ. And what the church is, what it really is, is the entire body of all of these people everywhere in the world. Millions and millions of people people who are long dead, who have 
lived all these 2,000 years and people that are Christians everywhere in the world now, they all make up this great church, this universal church. Can I take you to one more place in the Bible? Colossians chapter 1, Paul's little letter. The Apostle Paul was a man in darkness. A deeply religious man and in deep darkness. He hated Christ. He was a persecutor of the Christian church, killed and jailed Christians. But God called him too. And he became a selfless servant of the Savior, even giving his life for Jesus. And he wrote a letter to this church in a town called Colossae. Laura and I have been to Colossae. Today, it's just a large mound um, with a few things sticking up out of the ground. It's, uh, and underneath there, there's a whole city that has never been excavated yet. It's waiting, waiting. So hopefully someday they'll be getting into that more. Um, it's just lying buried there. But in Paul's day, it was a busy, bustling place in a beautiful valley. It's just a beautiful area. And Paul planted a church there and it flourished and he writes this letter to them while he's under arrest telling them how, how thankful he is for them and how he's praying for them. And he prays that they will walk worthy of Christ and then in verse 10 it says, and to please him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Woo! Kind of blows you over. He's not done. Why? Verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He talking about Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. He's the head of the church. Did you hear that? He's the head of the church. So here Paul uses the analogy of the church as a body, a living organism. And Christ is the head of that body. There's all kinds of ways the Bible describes what the church is. But at the core of all of these ideas is a called out people who belong to God, who love and worship and serve God. That is the church Jesus is speaking of in Matthew chapter 16. So now back there, I want to take a closer look at Jesus' words to Peter, particularly these words, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So now we know what the building is. It's the church, and I hope you have a clear understanding of what the church is now, a little, at least a little bit more. It's the called out people of God, called from darkness into light, from spiritual death to new life, from sin to redemption, from people estranged from God to people reconciled as children to God. So the building is the church. Now, who is the builder? 
What's he say? Not me, but I. Jesus speaking, right? I will build my church. So Christ himself builds his church. It is his special labor. And he's been doing it ever since the day of Pentecost when Peter preached on the streets of Jerusalem. He's done it in many places. Jesus has built that church in many languages amongst many cultures, all sorts of people. But it is one grand universal body of those he has called to himself. Men build buildings. In fact, the whole world, right, recently, last couple weeks here, we're mourning the loss of a great and beautiful structure, a building. Men built that thing, that glorious cathedral that burned so horribly. Men can persuade through all kinds of methods and means to fill buildings with people. But only those who are Christ's are the true church, the church that the Bible's talking about. The building is not the church. Being in a church building doesn't make you his any more than being in a garage makes you a car, or for acting people, being in a barn makes you a horse. It (laughs) doesn't necessarily mean that's what you are just because you're there. So those who are truly his are are far different from those who are churchgoers but really don't even know him. They don't have a relationship with him. And here are some of the distinguishing marks of those who are truly his. Um, When Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he addressed them as, at the very beginning of the book of Romans, he says, he calls them the called of Jesus Christ. That's their name. It is Christ who washes away our sins. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, Christ loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That theme keeps running through the scriptures. It is Christ who gives us eternal life. John chapter 10 verse 28, Jesus said, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It is Christ who gives us peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. John chapter 14 verse 27. It's Christ who enables us to become God's children, John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them, he gave the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So yeah, he, it's, it, he builds, he sustains, he protects the church. And we can take no credit for this great work, even though he employs people as instruments, he builds his church. As J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop, said so well, ministers may preach and writers may write, but the Lord Jesus Christ alone can build. And except he builds, the work still stands. So he's doing the work and he's doing it as serves best according to his infinite knowledge. And honestly, it's an amazing process. This, I, I stand in awe of the way Christ builds his church. And frequently, I don't get it. I I really don't. How he does it, I don't understand. I do see what he does in my little patch of the world, and it's amazing, and it's very real, but when I look at the big picture, I'm completely baffled. I mean, I really am. And you know, I'm kind of a church history buff, and when I read the history of the visible church, the buildings and the structures and the organizations and all of that, the church of men, it's so incredibly messy. Shockingly so. There's so much that's good and right and true, and there's so much error and sin and corruption and failure. 
And that's true all through church history, all through church history. There's no golden age. In fact, it's true in the Bible. Read the book of Corinthians. Like Paul has messed up churches under his purview, churches he planted. As you look around the world and how it is today, churches are swept up in compromise, foolishness, abusive control, heresies, just plain old sins. I mean, what kind of building project is this thing? You know, I wonder. And yet here we are this morning worshiping Jesus in sincerity and truth, I trust, with open Bibles in our laps or open phones with your apps, whatever, whatever, we, whatever, whatever you have your Bible on there. You like that line? Okay. <laughs> the church continues though, doesn't it? The church continues faithfully, faithfully all over the world. And when I think about it, the life of Jesus himself doesn't look so great either. It, it was a mess, not him personally, but all around. They rejected him. His disciples were pretty dense. His story is a story of rejection and dull men. So listen now. Had Jesus of Nazareth just died, we wouldn't even be here this morning, right? We wouldn't be holding anything like a, a New Testament in our hands. It wouldn't exist. There'd be nothing like that going on. We wouldn't be a people reconciled to God. There would be no light in the world at all. No light in us, no peace, no confidence that we are accepted by, by God for Jesus' sake because God is holy and we're not. But we do have all of those things. So you have to see what an amazing Easter text this is. I will build my church is an amazing thing to say in Matthew chapter 16 in the light of all the rejection that has happened leading up to those words in the gospel here. Are you there in that text in Matthew 16? Skip down a little bit to verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He, in, at this point in his life, when he's saying these words to Peter, he is already looking ahead to an excruciating death a necessary death as the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrifice that will stand for us in the judgment. But that's not the end. His story continues, and be raised up on the third day. It is the resurrected Christ who builds his church. It's not just, what a wonderful life, let's all celebrate him for 2,000 years. It's not that. He is actively engaged in building his church the resurrected Lord throughout the world. I will build my church is a sure declaration that Jesus makes that his personal headship over the church would be unending and perfectly achieve his goals, as messy as it looks. And it's messy because humans are messy. Human beings are a mess. But the work goes on, and millions and millions of people find new life in him they love him. They proclaim the excellencies of his name with great sincerity and in truth. So when the messiness of it bothers me, his words here comfort me and provide rest for my heart. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, will not prevail. It can't die. The church cannot die. No matter how bleak things look, how much failure we see, how far people have turned away from God's word, he builds his church. 
It's a lot of talk about the gates of Hades phrase used here. I think we usually think of it as something rather like the powers of darkness. And of course, satanic opposition is a very real thing. And he seems to have a lot of victories corrupting the church of Christ. But Hades in the Bible essentially is a reference to the abode of the dead. It's where the dead souls go uh, to await judgment. Those that do not have salvation in Christ. If you're a Christian, you die, you go to, you go to heaven. But if you are not a Christian, you die, you go to Hades. That's the place where the dead go to await. It's sort of like jail before prison. Satan is actually described in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It describes him as the one who, quote, had the power of death. And Christ in that same passage is the one who renders him powerless and frees, quote, those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So, so death and Satan's power in the world are related ideas. The church, the, the body of true believers, is completely secure from Hades' open mouth. We don't have to fear that. Death has no hold on us who belong to Christ, and it has no hold on the church. But Christians face great suffering and death daily throughout the world for the sake of Christ. Here's a, new artic- a news article from two weeks ago. Hundreds of Christians were killed last month in a spike in Fulani violence in Nigeria. The militant group have now taken over Boko Haram as the biggest threat in the country's Middle Belt region. March saw 27 attacks by Fulani herdsmen which led to the deaths of 225 Christians, thousands of families displaced from their homes and the prolific destruction of property according to Human Rights Organization International Christian Concern. The heaviest losses occurred in Nigeria's Plateau State region where 107 Christians were killed. Last Sunday, last Sunday, 17 Christians were killed at a Baptist church in Nigeria just just after they had a baby dedication. Look it up online. All shot to death. That's just one country. That's just Nigeria we're talking about there. In Sri Lanka, a few hours ago, if you saw the news, bombs killed in in an Easter service at church. They blew up this church, killed 225 people or something, 207. 207 Christians were killed at Easter church bombing. There were several bombings. In Egypt, churches have been blown up during services in the last few years. North Korea executes Christians all the time. China, the greatest power in the world other than the United States, has started on a campaign of systematically arresting, beating, and long-term incarceration just for worshiping in non-state-approved churches. And just this month, it came out that the Communist Party in China is rewriting the Bible for, for, for the Chinese. It'll be a truly Chinese document, changed to fit with communist ideology. It'll be the only Bible allowed in state-controlled churches. It's actually astonishing how much persecution against Christians goes on in the world. But every major human rights group agrees that Christianity is by far the most persecuted religion on earth. By far. That is as it must be. That is is the way it's supposed to be. Because we live in a world that's in rebellion against God. And in a very real sense, the true church of God in this world is a force acting in enemy-occupied territory, behind the lines, if you will. And so, if they find us, they're going to be pretty upset with us. We should never be surprised by all of that. All the way back to the New Testament, the Apostle John says, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. 
I've learned not to be surprised. Here in the U.S., things are not nearly as bad, of course, in other places, but Christians do lose jobs for their beliefs or are denied opportunities for their beliefs. Small businesses are shut down for following their conscience. Academic programs in some places are denied to Christians just for their beliefs, not because they've done anything or said anything. There was a rather serious effort here in California to literally crush Christian colleges here, and it got sort of staved off, but there was a great desire to do that a year or so ago. And that's to be expected. That's to be expected. Unfortunately, a lot of those colleges are kind of bending to the fear, you know, and changing their own practices and belief systems. It's actually part of the Christian life to be mocked and hated. That's what we're here for. That's part of it. That's what we're here for. It's our job description, hated, persecuted. That's in our job description. We should be really glad we live in America where it's pretty minimal so far. I mean, you know, when the world goes insane... It's our job to be sane, and the insane world doesn't like that, doesn't like that. So when you're hated for believing really outrageous things, kind of expect it. I mean, really outrageous things, like, you know, there's two genders. That's incredible. Men and women are different. Marriage is the union of those differences. That's what, those are the most horrific beliefs. I know everybody believed them for thousands of years up until the last 10 or 15 years, but that's radical stuff in our culture. Horribly radical stuff. And everyone used to believe it, but just expect the hatred. It's okay. So we have a problem. As Christians, we, we have this problem. We have to cling tenaciously to what is true, and we're not allowed to adapt to the prevailing ideologies of the day because we have this absolute authority, and he's wonderful. So we're going to follow him, whatever he says. When he teaches about marriage, that's what we're going to believe about it. That's all there is to it. That is what the world hates. We never quite fit in. We never quite fit in. We wouldn't worship the pagan gods. We won't worship the state. We won't bow the knee to shifting morality. We just don't fit. So don't become a Christian if you're not up for scorn and hatred. Just don't bother. Don't do it. When you switch sides in a rebellion, the rebels are not happy. J.C. Ryle again, the Anglican bishop, of great, great man of God, looking at all the great figures of church history. He was a real church historian. He said, what are the lives of the saints but records of battles? And he's right. Can you think of a well-known, famous Christian down through the ages who had an easy life? Can you think of one that wasn't in some kind of battle? I don't mean warfare, physical warfare. I mean just wrestling with the world and the church and all kinds of stuff all the time, all the time. He did too, Dr. Ryle. So if you are knowledgeable of church history, you might say that many of those battles are in, are in churches. And Past persecution came from churches against the true church, which is the true body of Christ in those churches. So yeah, that's how it is. It will always be that way. The invisible church, the true body of Christ, is not the same as the visible church, organizations, denominations, structures, all of that. They're not the same thing. True believers, the body of Christ made up of his called out ones, they might only make up a fraction of people in some church institutions. That could well be. Don't become a Christian if you want everyone to love you. Don't, don't go there. 
If it's more important than you be loved and accepted and well thought of by the world, don't become a Christian. I can promise you no peace with the world and certainly not peace with the devil. But do become a Christian if you want to know the love of God because that's where it's found in Jesus Christ. Is there a fuller expression of love anywhere than in Him? I can't even comprehend a love beyond Him. I can't, I, I can't comprehend a love approaching Him. I know of no other teaching or person that even approaches Him. That's an unshakable reality. Do become a Christian if you want to become clean because the Bible says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's a reason to become a Christian. Do become a Christian if you want peace with God. That's a promise He gives us. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is a lot more than a feeling. It's, it's actually a legal fact. A holy God is against sinners. Jesus paid our debt. Sin puts you in the camp of the rebels. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus died. The wages of sin is death. And he paid the wages that we owe to divine justice, a holy justice. And when we accept him, our debt is paid and we are at peace with God. That's worth the scorn of the world. Better than that, God looks on us as children, favored children when we come to him through Christ. And he wants us to know this. That's why there is a resurrection. The resurrection says, I want you to know that what Jesus accomplished for you is real and that he lives today and he's looking out for his own and he is building his church. The risen Christ is the head of the church, the body of people who have received mercy, who've been born anew. And the risen Christ is proof that his death counted for us. I mean, you could say this dead guy's a savior, but how do you know? Well, only one guy rose from the dead that, that I know of. And that's the proof. It did make peace. How can you have this forgiveness? I'm just going to tell you this, and then we're done. Humble yourself. This is, how you, this is the path to forgiveness and cleansing. Humble yourself. Realize that your sin actually is an offense against heaven. And accept that this is a valid judgment against you. I never had a problem with that. I, uh, but long before I was a Christian, I knew I was not a good person because I couldn't keep my own standard. If you can't live up to your own standards, you're really lost. Then you start looking at the God standard and you can't make it. So humble yourself. And then turn to the Savior and receive Him as your King and the Savior of your soul from sin. Receive His mercy. That's all He seeks from you is coming to Him like that. It's a life-changing choice for you to make. Don't do it lightly. Count the cost. But if you see the worth of it, pursue him because he's ready for you. And you will be one of those called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Lord God, the Savior you sent into our dark world is worthy of all of our devotion, even if it means rejection and scorn from men. But he is worth it. Let us see him as he is. Put forth your powerful call on every heart that does not know you in this room. And let us rejoice together in the true church of God 
and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We pray this in the name of our great Savior. Amen.